Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for giving us your word, the Bible. We pray that you'll help us to understand what the Bible says this morning. We pray that uh, you'll help us to be wise in the way that we think about money and the way that we use money. Uh, please uh, help us to learn from the teacher and help us to put into practice what we learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a quick quiz. Um, I don't normally get you to respond. Usually my questions are rhetorical, but this is, uh, these are real questions. Okay, quick quiz. I'm going to give you some words uh, from a song, okay, and you tell me the artist. All right? Hands on buzzers if you're watching, if you watch that show on SBS. Um, money don't get everything, it's true, but what it don't get, I can't use. Just give me money. That's what I want. Beatles, Beatles. Um, money, 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 always sunny. It's a rich man's Abba. world, Abba. Okay. Uh, money, so they say, is the root of all evil today. <laughs> but if you ask for a rise, it's no surprise that they're giving none away. Pink Floyd. Okay, well done. Money. It's the topic of many songs. It's, it's the constant topic on the news at the moment. Uh, you start with the economy report at the moment. Interest rates, share markets, superannuation, it's all you ever hear. Uh, this week I went to a news agent and I found dozens of magazines and even, I couldn't believe it, a whole newspaper devoted to money. Who on earth would ever read the Financial Review? My goodness me. <laughs> <no. coughs> uh, I bought one magazine that caught my eye. It's called, aptly, Money. Uh, and emblazoned on the front it says, $100 extra a week. We show you how. Uh, the blurb says this. It says the author, and I quote, has a stack of surprising tips about how to make an extra $100 a week. And listen to this. They could make your life a whole lot more worth living. Now, as it turns out, it's a very sensible article. A um, very good article, I think. But is it true that an extra $100 a week will make your life a whole lot more worth living. In fact, is it true that any amount of money will make your life worth living? We sing about money, we read about money, we watch TV about money, we work for money, we scheme for money, we stress about money, we break up our marriages over money. Money, as someone before my time saying, makes the world go round. But is it really worth it? Is it worth it? Can, can money make life worth living? Can money give us lasting gain? In Ecclesiastes so far, we've been listening to the words of the teacher, the king in Israel. And this teacher is on a quest. He's on a mission. He's on a quest to find out what there is to be gained in life. What there is that you can get in life that is yours, that you can keep. And he's checked out all kinds of things that people live for. But his conclusion? Well, he says it's all, to use the Hebrew word, hevel. It's all heavy, it's, it's, it's fleeting, it's insubstantial. Here one second, gone the next. It's, it's like a breath. It's gone. Meaningless, the NIV translates it. There is nothing that you can gain that you can keep. Trying to, trying to get something like that, trying to get something you can keep, it's like, it's like chasing the wind. 
And so the teacher has told us in the first section we need to accept and enjoy life for what it is and fear the God who has made it this way. Well, now in the next section of, of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, he takes us back over some of the same ground. We're going to look more at the subject of what gain there is to be made in life. But this time, he's going to look at things in a little bit more detail. In chapters 5 and 6, the teacher gives us an extended reflection on this issue of money. Now, the first thing the teacher addresses is the love of money, the, uh, the, the ambition, the desire to get more money. He starts off by saying that the love of money, it leads to exploitation. As, uh, as ambitious people eye each other off, as, as everyone from the king down tries to profit from the poor, as everybody, all these ambitious people want a piece of the action, it leads to exploitation. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 8. Have a look with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied... Do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Still true today, isn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the action. Those who want to get rich will exploit the poor. Uh, the poor pay big interest bills. The rich charge big interest bills. The poor pay their taxes. The rich avoid their taxes. According to My Money magazine, over 453,000 Australians fell victim to money scams last year. Now, many of them poor people. They lost on average $2,160 each. Uh, the, the love of money, it leads to exploitation. Uh, the teacher also says that the love of money will leave you unsatisfied. You, you'll never have enough. Verse 10. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Someone once spoke to a man by the name of John Paul Getty. Now, John Paul Getty at the time was the richest man in the world. And this person, I think it was a reporter, asked him, Mr. Getty, Mr. Getty, how much is enough? And uh, John Paul Getty, the richest man in the world, he rubbed his hands together and he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. The love of money is Hevel. It leads to oppression. It never satisfied. It never satisfies. And, and even, even money and possessions themselves, they're not all good. They're not all good. They do have some disadvantages. Now, for a start, the more you have, the more you have to spend. Uh, the bigger your crop, the more labourers you need to employ. The, the more you have, the more you start to attract parasites who want their peace. So all of a sudden, the, 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 the Don King type slime balls are wanting to be your manager and, and help you with your money. You, you end up just watching as other people take off with what you have. Verse 11. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The more you have, the more you have to spend. And also the more you have, the more you have to worry about. Verse 12. The sleep of a labourer is sweet. Thanks to those who helped in the working bee yesterday. Whether he is little or much. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Money is not necessarily a good thing. 
Money does not necessarily make you happy. The teacher sees that. And he goes on to say that he sees, on the one hand, that money can make you a greedy, miserable, miserly hoarder. Uh, or on the other hand, it can so easily be lost and make you miserable that way. You reckon money's important? You reckon it's worth pouring your life into getting ahead? Well, the trouble is, all it takes is a bad season on the farm. All it takes is a stock market crash or a recession and, and you can lose the lot. Verse 13. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Money's not necessarily a good thing. It can lead to misery. Now, the next point the teacher makes, it's the point that he's been making from the start of the book. There is no gain in money. You can't take it with you. If you work and stress in the fantasy that you can, well, you're only going to be frustrated and bitter. Verse 15. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. Nelson Rockefeller is uh, very famous as being one of the richest men who ever lived. And when he died, um, someone spoke to his executor and, and asked the obvious question, how much did he leave? The executor's answer, everything. He left everything. And you will too. You will leave everything. Soon you'll be dead and you can't take any money with you. Someone else will enjoy the money that you have worked so hard for. The fact is, with all our toil, with all our stress trying to get rich, we are chasing wind. There is no gain to be made. And so again, the teacher has his wise advice. Money is heaven. There's no lasting gain in it. But still, it's a good gift from God. It can bring enjoyment. So what do you do? What's the wise thing to do? Well, accept money for what it is and enjoy it for what it is. Verse 18. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot... And to be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. Similar kind of conclusion to what we've seen so far, isn't it? Recognize it for what it is. Accept it for what it is. Enjoy it for what it is. Not for what it isn't. Now, the teacher then goes on to make a very important distinction. You see, I think this is a very, very clever point, actually. Wealth in itself, money in itself, is not really what we're looking for. If you boil it down, what we're looking for is not money per se. What we are looking for is the enjoyment of money. Now, the teacher gives us a case study. He says, imagine the, the, the healthiest, wealthiest man you could ever think of. A man with 
this is back in the days when people actually liked children, a man with a hundred children. A, a, a man who lives 2,000 years. The teacher says, if he doesn't get to enjoy his wealth, it's all hevel. He'd have been better off never having been born than to have all of this and not enjoy it. Chapter 6 and verse 1. I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions and honour so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It, that's the stillborn child, comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and it's dark, in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. You see what he's saying there? The issue is not money or possessions in themselves. Money itself can't make you happy. You can't buy happiness because happiness is something that is inside you. It doesn't come from outside you. It is inside you. What we really want is to enjoy our possessions and that doesn't necessarily come with having lots of them. It's a state of mind. It's a state of mind that you can have whether you've got lots or whether you've only got a little. Having stuff in itself won't satisfy you. You will never be full, he says in verse 7. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. The issue is not how much stuff do I have. The issue is, from the teacher's perspective, do you enjoy it or not? And so again, he's got some wisdom for us. The wisdom is this. Enjoy what you've got and don't always be on the lookout for more. Verse 8. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What, what does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Here it is. Here's what the wise man can see that the fool can't. Here's the wisdom. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. Now this too, that's the roving of the appetite, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. You see what it's saying there? Enjoy what you've got. Enjoy what is there in front of you, what your eye sees. Don't always be roving around wanting what you don't have. You'll never be satisfied. It is a recipe for misery. Now the teacher concludes by reminding us that his wisdom flows from reality. From the way it is. First he says, this is the way God has made things. And you can't contend with God. Verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named. What man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, the less the meaning. How does that profit anyone? You can't contend with God and the way he has made things. And secondly, secondly you don't know the future. You can say to yourself, and this is the essence of that magazine I was reading, you can say to yourself, I'll just get a bit more. I'll just get the mortgage paid on the house. I'll just get that car. I'll sacrifice now and I'll just get that in the future and then I'll be satisfied. But the thing is, you don't know what the future holds. How could you possibly know what is good for your future when you don't know what your future is? 
It is foolish to wreck the present for the sake of an unknown future. Verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? And so there's the teacher's wisdom. His wisdom on money. There is no lasting gain in money. It is not worth the constant miserable striving for more. It is not worth the stress and the fuss to get rich as if that is what is going to make your life worth living. You're better off enjoying what you've got. You know, you know this is good wisdom for Christians like us. Far too many Christians spend their lives in the constant struggle for more. Whether it's with the lame excuse that I'm providing for my family. Far too many Christians spend their lives feeding their insatiable love of money. Far too many Christians strive on in the hope that money will bring them security, that money will bring them happiness, that money will give their family what they need, that money will give them joy, that money will give them meaning. Far too many Christians stress and fight and overwork in the dream that one day they will have enough, that one day they will be satisfied. Friends, friends, it's a lie. It's a lie. The teacher knew it's a lie. Two and a half thousand years ago, he knew it's a lie. And the New Testament says the same thing. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. What the teacher says is wise advice for you, Christian, particularly if you are a stressed out, workaholic Christian, particularly if you are a Christian who is just craving for that, that thing that you could have that you think will give you the life that you want. It is good wisdom. Better what the eye sees now than the roving of the appetite. It's good wisdom. But, but there is one thing to add. There's something that the teacher didn't know. It's not that he wasn't wise. It's just, it's just got to do with his place in history. Something that the teacher didn't know. You see, you see, there is a treasure that will last. There is something that you can get that you can keep. When, when Jesus died on the cross, he took on himself the, the, the death, the futility, the, the hevel that we deserve. He took on himself that shortness of our life. He took on himself our death. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, he defeated death. And he opened up the way to eternal life. For those who rely on him, he opened up the possibility of an eternal relationship with God and with people. A relationship, stunningly enough, a relationship that you and I can invest in now. You want to invest in futures? 
On your outline, on your outline there, I've put some words of Jesus. Have a look with me. Can you see where I am? I'm uh, right-hand side, near the top. This is what Jesus says from Matthew 6. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So the teacher didn't know this. He's half, half a millennium before Jesus. There is such a thing as treasure in heaven and it is possible now to invest. It is possible to store up that kind of treasure now. Look at the next verse on your outline from 1 Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world, that's you, here's God's command, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's very much like Ecclesiastes, isn't it? But now look at this. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Did you get that? Being generous and willing to share lays up treasure in the coming age. That's what it says, isn't it? Now, don't get me wrong here. It's not that we can buy our way into heaven. No, no way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But somehow, our generosity now impacts then. Let's think a little bit about how that may be. I can think of at least two ways that our use of money here has eternal consequences. First, there's the fact that you and I are eternal. You and I will live forever. There is a day of judgment coming. A day when you and I will stand before God and we will have to give account for our lives. And part of what we'll give account for is the way that we use the money that God has entrusted us. I will stand before God on judgment day. I will stand before God on judgment day and, well, I could stand before him as a man who lived my life as a selfish miser. Or I could stand before God on Judgment Day as a man who lived as a generous philanthropist. See, it's my choice how I live now, today, but on that day I'll reap the eternal consequences because I am eternal. But, but then it's not just, it's not, not, not just me that's eternal. Our relationships with each other, with other people, are eternal. And that leads to a second way that our use of money now has eternal consequences. Now, the way it works is this. Imagine you have $1,000. You could spend the $1,000 on a flat-screen TV. That'll keep you anaesthetised for a few years. Uh, Or you could spend the money on your mortgage. That'll get you some bricks and mortar to live in for a few short years. But now imagine, just as purely hypothetical thing, just imagine now for a moment that you were to give the money to Mission Day, just as a hypothetical example out of nowhere. Uh, The the money goes to support uh, Nathan and Kathy Griffith or or Nerida Bell or Chandra Smith or Paul Morris or the Bible College in Bangladesh. 
Okay, now picture yourself a million years from today. The flat screen TV is ashes. The, the, the house is long ago turned to dust. You're in heaven. A person comes up to you. You've never met them before, despite the million years you've been around in heaven. You introduce yourself. And the person says, I know you. He says, uh, you might not remember this, but, but a million years ago, on the 26th of October 2008, you gave $1,000 to the Chatswood Presbyterian Mission Sunday. That money went to the uh, Presbyterian Theological Centre in Bangladesh. They trained up an evangelist. Uh, the evangelist came to my village, uh, shared with me the message about Jesus. I put my trust in Jesus and here I am. He says, friend, friend, I wouldn't be here without you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Nice image, don't you reckon? Jesus calls it, and I reckon this is a beautifully frank expression. This is almost a direct quote from Jesus. Jesus calls it this. He calls it, using worldly wealth to gain friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Did you get that? I'll say it again. Using worldly wealth to gain friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. People are eternal. People can end up in heaven. And so if you invest in people, and particularly in helping people get to heaven, you are making an eternal investment. You are gaining friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Puts the lie to the other Beatles song. Here's a case where money can buy you love, eternal love. Well, that's the factor that the teacher didn't know. He didn't know there was a resurrected Jesus. He didn't know there was an eternal kingdom for God's people. He didn't know that money can be used for eternal benefit. And so his advice is true and good wisdom, but it's not all there is for Christians. So let me conclude then very briefly by giving you a three-point Christian way of thinking about money. Now the first two points, they flow out of Ecclesiastes, but there's also a third point that flows out from the, the fact of the resurrected Jesus and of the eternal gain that is found in him. There on your outline, you can see the three points. How should Christians deal with money? Point number one, we should be realistic about money. There's nothing wrong with money. We need money to live. We ought to work. We shouldn't bludge. Money is a gift from God, but money is not worth living for. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Naked we come into the world, naked we depart. Moth and rust destroy our money. Thieves break in and steal it. Living for money is chasing wind. Relying on money is relying on wind. It's hevel. Got to be realistic. And so point two, we should be content. What our eye sees is, the be is better than the roving of the appetite. Don't spend your life dreaming of how you'll be content with just a bit more. Don't think that if you get the extra $100 a week, your life will be so much more worth living. Be content with what you have now. Enjoy it for the good gift of God that it is. Enjoy it. Don't feel guilty about enjoying it. God's given it to you. Enjoy it. Don't wreck the good gift by feeling guilty and always worrying about it. It's yours. God gave it to you. Enjoy it for what it is. Be realistic, be content, and then point three, be generous. The day will soon come 
when you will stand before God and give an account for your life. What sort of person will you have been? A generous person? Or a stinge? What sort of person will you have been? And who's going to be there with the welcome card out for you? One of Carmelina's favourite things to do is to, to watch people at the airport as they welcome their family. Who's going to be there to welcome you at the airport, if we're assuming we fly in with Qantas to heaven? Who's going to be there to welcome you? Will you have bought some friends to welcome you into eternal dwellings? Will you have invested in heavenly treasure? Friends, money is a good gift of God. It may even be worth a song or two. But as Bob Dylan Famously said, I think you will find when your death takes its toll that all the money you made will never buy back your soul. Money is not worth living for. Let's be wise with our money. Let's be realistic. Let's be content. And let's be generous. Let's pray. Mighty God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you because you are the giver of all good things thank and praise you for the wealth that we enjoy. We thank and praise you for our money, for our stuff, for our houses. Above all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the eternal gain that is found in him. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might be people of sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be people whose discipleship extends to our hip pockets. We might be people who are realistic and content and generous with our money because we love the Lord Jesus Christ as our number one priority as our King and our Saviour and our only eternal hope. Uh, please, we pray that you'll help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.